Welcome to Flip It or Skip It, brought to you by WorthPoint, the world's largest antiques and collectibles pricing and research database. Buy right, sell right, and profit more with WorthPoint. Now, let's meet our hosts. Hi, I'm Wayne Jordan. And I'm Dana Crawford. In today's episode, number seven of Flip It or Skip It, we're going to pick up where we left off with last week's discussion on record collecting. Uh, when we came to the end of the episode, we were discussing uh, collecting old 78 RPM records. Some of those were vinyl and some of those were shellac. And we'll be talking about the ins and outs of collecting those in today's episode. Okay, so let's catch up on a few definitions first. Most of our listeners will know that when we talk about a 78, we're talking about the playing speed of the record. The 78s, for the most part, come in two sizes, 10 inches or 12 inches. Initially, 78s were made out of shellac or coated with shellac. The reason that shellac stopped being the common material for the manufacture of these records had to do with World War II. You'll recall that during World War II, uh, the War Production Board directed raw materials to be used for military purposes. And shellac was used to make signal flares and explosives. It was coating on, on artillery shells. So in order to provide this shellac to the military, they ordered a 70% cut in the production of new photograph records. Record production consumed about a third of the nation's supply of shellac. Of course, manufacturers of records were going to keep making records. They needed a new material, and the new material that they ended up with was vinyl, which is a good thing because vinyl is simply better than shellac for that purpose. They're less brittle. Uh, they're a little bit flexible. That's why after World War II, you'll see that most 78s were made of vinyl. So are we caught up? Let's hope so. Let's move on. As there was a time in the early days of, of recording, you mentioned the, the Victrola and the big horn, mm -hmm. uh, the speaker that would come out. Well, in the early days, artists would sing or talk or play into the big end of that horn. And on the other end, there was a stylus that would cut grooves into uh, the record master. And, and that's how they made early records. That's why they sound so terrible. <laughs> it sounds like a recording in a tin can. Because literally, uh, they were just about doing that recording in a tin can. Later, one of the big technological breakthroughs in records was you'll look on the label and you'll see electrically recorded. And that was a big deal because huh. it meant that the quality was going to be better. So if you find these old 78s and it says electrically recorded, that makes a difference. Some people oh. collect those. If it doesn't say electrically recorded, there's a time period where if it said it, it was the newer technology. Eventually, it was assumed that everything was going to be that technology. But mm -hmm. if you go back into the, the 20s, for example, and, and you see a record that says elect electrically recorded, and then you have another one from the same period that doesn't say that, you have two 
different technologies at work there. People collect on the basis of that as well. There is a, a, another book that I have on my shelf. It's titled A Guide to Pseudonyms on American Records, 1892 to 1942. And, of course, we're talking old records, old Dixieland and, and uh -huh. ragtime, early jazz stuff, uh, mostly in folk tunes and, and hillbilly. What's intriguing about that is uh, these early recording artists, many of them would enter into a recording contract with a particular label. Mm -hmm. But musicians have to work. And in those days, the uh, royalty structure for re reimbursing musicians for record sales was just about non-existent. Uh, so these guys would go out and play club dates and do recording dates and, and so on and so forth. But in order to get more work, uh, they would hire themselves out to other record labels, but they'd record under a pseudonym. Uh, for example, one of the early Dixieland jazz groups was called the... Uh, King Oliver Creole Jazz Band. Well, their trumpet player was Louis Armstrong. Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, but uh, Louis Armstrong recorded under different, uh, under various pseudonyms uh, as well. Louis Armstrong performed under the pseudonym Ted Sean. Fats Waller took the name Flip Wallace. Duke Ellington recorded under 22 different pseudonyms. Wow. So... If you know something about the genre of music and who's in the bands, you can really find some hidden gems. And it's necessary to have good reference guides. You won't find that kind of information typically on in online sources, although you sometimes do. That's the way to uncover some of these early groups. So if you if you know who's in these groups and who is playing with with who. It makes a difference because then you can tell a story about the background of the sure the group and and who was in it and that's the first thing I do when I go into any kind of store sale whatever and find a bunch of uh, seventy eighty RPM shellac records is I'll sort for labels because labels like Columbia RCA the big labels uh, hire big artists and, mm -hmm. and they usually press. Lots of records. I tr I want to shy away from those. I want obscure, obscure labels like um, uh, Vocalion and other labels to look for would be like oh Paramount, OK, which is O K E H, uh, Black Patty, Emerson, Black Swan. They're the ones that have the most interesting artists, and they're the ones that are most likely to have uh, artists and musicians that are recording under pseudonyms. Some of the ones from that period that specialized in what then was called race music. Today we call it blues, but they were originally marketed as race music. I also like to look at old hillbilly and early country music, Western swing, all these, these early iterations of music that today have become something completely different. I mean, you take the old hillbilly records <laughs> the, in the early days that became known as country and the Western swing was Western. So there was a whole genre of music during the fifties and sixties called country and Western. It didn't it's just kind of a melding of, of the, the two types. 
I, I have a friend of mine who's a musicologist, and his collection is phenomenal. I mean, he's got old wax cylinders and wax cylinder players, and yeah, he specializes in old jazz. And uh, he says his rule of thumb is that if you if you recognize the name of the artist, probably not something you should buy. Mm-hmm. So those are are good um, good good way to sort is to start by sorting a stack by the labels and oh. taking the labels uh, that you don't know what they are and setting them aside. Then once you do that, uh, then I go through and I start looking through the artists and do I know who these guys are? Do I know what the assemblage of uh, players is? If I don't, it doesn't matter because I found consistently that when I want to wheel and deal on those records with an antique store owner or a flea market vendor, they don't know who these people are either. <laughs> uh, they've put, uh, for example, it wasn't too long ago that I went into a store going through a stack of 78s like that. And the owner had high prices on records by the Carter family. Well, you know, the Carter family was a, a seminal act in country music. But they just priced them real high because they knew who it is and they know it was popular. They had low prices on all the rest of them. And they wanted to wheel and deal on the rest of them because they didn't know who these people were and they were willing to get rid of them cheap. They wanted to hang on to the to the Carter family and and uh, Jimmy Rogers and, and uh, artists like that because the tourists were going to pay a lot of money for them. <laughs> but not me. So if you go that that two part system, if you just start by sorting for labels and then sort mm-hmm. by artists, you can usually find some real good buys. Also, with some of these labels, even even uh, take a large label like Columbia. Columbia uh-huh. was huge uh, when race music and hillbilly music mm-hmm. took off. They missed a lot of sales. They were signing, uh, Columbia was signing big artists and big acts and classical music and that sort of thing. Uh, in order to capture some of the, the smaller niche markets, they started to produce uh, records and, and albums with different color labels. So it would still say Columbia, but it would have blue instead of red or sure. something like that. It would be a different color. So in sorting through these, if you see something that's non-standard, you want to take a second look at it. This is a good spot to take a break, and we'll pick up with our discussion right after this message from our sponsor. Dealers, you don't have to build your own reference library. WorthPoint has done it for you. With WorthPoint's digital library, you can access over 1,000 books on antiques and collectibles in one convenient place. Find the info you need quickly. Search books by title or author or subject. Dig deep using a keyword search. Don't waste time digging through pages of Google results. Get there quicker with WorthPoint. For a 7-day, 7-look-up free trial, go to worthpoint.com. We're back and we're discussing the ins and outs of flipping old 78 RPM records. Uh, Dana, what do you have to say on the subject? Another thing I wanted to point out, Wayne, I was interested. I can remember when I I purchased a box of 78s one time and they Mm -hmm. were kind of dull. And Mm -hmm. I thought, I just got some warm, soapy water 
and right. and I clean them that way, careful mm-hmm. not to get it on the label because the label right. is so fragile. Now, right. how would you recommend to clean them? Soap and water is really the best thing because it'll get rid of the, the dirt. And I've seen some crazy, crazy ways that, that people clean records. Mm-hmm. And I've tried a few of them just to yes. see how, how well they work. There's there's one method, and you can still find these videos on on YouTube, where they will take uh, Elmer's glue or Carpenter's glue, no, and cover, yeah, cover the record, no, in the glue. What? And then you let it dry, and when it dries, you peel it up. Oh my goodness! And it pulls the dirt. Uh, that's the claim that it pulls the dirt out of the. Uh, the no. grooves. And uh, when I did it, I uh, thought, wow, this is really cool. It works because I'd pull the, no. it, you know, it's, it's, it's like latex. It's like, and it works latex paint. It, yeah. Pulled, pulled the dirt off. Oh my God. But because you could pull it up and you could look on it and it had all of this dirt and oh grunge goodness. on the back side of it. But it doesn't do any better than <laughs> washing the record. <laughs> Washing the record works perfectly it's fine. It's cheaper. It's cheaper. Uh, it's uh, you can do it quickly. Uh, it doesn't. You don't have to let it dry overnight. Right. I mean, the other one is just uh, teach his own. For sure. me, sure. You know, a mild soapy water. Uh, yeah. Some folks say, "Oh, you have to use distilled water." I think that's a little much. Yeah, a little much too. I mean, if I. If I'm okay drinking my well water, I'm okay washing my records. <laughs> That's good. But I yeah. have you noticed that though? A lot of seventy eights are kind of dull. They're not yes, shiny they, like a vinyl. Yeah, they are. Well, you know, uh, record players and needles are hard on records. Sure. Forty fives. You see forty more. I see more scratched up. 45s than anything else True. because when, when we were True. kids in the 60s we'd take them and put them on our our record player in in stacks right and move the arm over and have an automatic changer where it would drop them but when the next one dropped down the bottom one was still spinning and every yeah. time it would drop it would scratch it and uh if we were uh, heaven forbid dancing <laughs> to this music <laughs> at somebody's house the floor would get to, to shaking and the needle would start to rock up <laughs> and down and the tracking would go off. And, and, uh, before in the days before, uh, audio files were buying fancy playback systems, uh, you'd, we'd take a coin, a penny or a nickel or whatever, and tape it to the, over the needle, tape it to where the cartridge yes, would be. Yes, I've seen people do that. And, and that would give a little bit of extra weight. So it wouldn't skip, so that it would track better. But of course, that's not good for the for the record. And we were talking about the old seventy eights. Well, some of those early records on early Victrolas, mm-hmm. you had to ch- you had to change the needle every time you played a record. Wow. Yeah, every time. Most people don't know that. But if you're going to keep from damaging the record, you need to change it. And you also can't play those things. On modern equipment with modern stylus, because oh. it, it'll dam the needles are too fine. These diamond sure. diamond tip needles will just cut right into one of those old records. So, 
equipment is essential. You need to have a a player that will play all of these things so you can can listen mm-hmm. to them and watch them go around. Sure. <laughs> See if they wiggle and wobble and if the hole is in straight and like other collectibles we've talked about, conditions, mm-hmm. everything. Well, the other thing, Wayne, is the difference we were talking about um, on our previous segment about vinyl records and with shipping and shipping mm-hmm. 78s is a totally different ball game. Right. Totally different. And what I learned was to spend the extra money and purchase big bubbles versus Mm -hmm. little bubbles. Big bubble wrap has better cushion and support than Mm -hmm. small bubble wrap. Right. And I actually learned that from an official postal worker, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, the postmaster secretary, and she really convinced me that big bubbles are better. So when you put put your your record album in bubble wrap and then you have to have a proper box you can't right. get a cheap flimsy box right. have you shipped 78s before i have mm-hmm. yeah um i prefer if i'm buying i prefer to just go pick them up depends on sure how far away they are uh but i use the standard bubble uh, yeah and, yeah and and a record shipping box okay that was before i knew about your nifty method for (laughs) (laughs) well i wouldn't recommend my method on 78s that are more fragile honestly however um the 12 by 12 by 12 average box that you can get from priority mail you can put popcorn and then your bubble and then popcorn And um, double box, put a layer of of cardboard around that bubble, you know, so that you're practically double boxing that. And I noticed that um, the record gentleman that I taught how to sell on eBay, he had 78s in addition to his collection. And he was already getting what his strategy was. He would go on eBay and buy some Mm -hmm. and then see how they were shipped to him. And then oh. he would learn from other sellers. And that's a good strategy. I mean, that's always an option. You could go in and right. buy some 78s that are low price and right. take a look at how this professional person has shipped it to them and right. follow success. Well, Dana, here we are at the end of episode seven. And um, this has been enlightening. I- I've enjoyed it. You've presented a few good ideas on on shipping and and how to keep the records from breaking. And of course, online sellers need that information. That's it, Wayne. And I think everyone should walk away with um, being inspired and understanding that selling 78s is not all it's cracked up to be. Because of them being, um, because of them breaking so easily. Yes, being so fragile. I get it. I get it. Boy, I'll tell you, you come up with some zingers at the end here. That's good. All right, folks. Thanks for sticking around. And uh, we'll we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Flip It or Skip It, brought to you by WorthPoint.com the world's largest antiques and collectibles pricing and research database. Buy right, sell right, and profit more with WorthPoint. Point.